Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode. Hey, what's up? It's Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. BMG Chief Operating Officer Benjamin Kadofsky has left his position at the company. U.S. indie label Ghostly International and Secretly have formed a new company called All Flowers Group, which will be the parent company of Ghostly and the newly launched hip-hop and R&B label Drink Some Water. The independent record label and creative agency Big Ass Kids has signed onto a joint venture deal with Warner Music Group's label and artist services arm ADA Worldwide. The Chainsmokers will become the first major label artist to share royalties for an entire album for free via NFT platform Royal. YouTube's quarter one revenue was more than double what Spotify made across its business in their quarter one. Brandon Silverstein's S10 Films has signed a partnership with Simon Fuller that will, quote, develop new entertainment content together. Snapchat's owner has been sued by the Swiss Collection Society for, quote, refusing to pay authors and publishers for music on its platform. Sonos is officially launching its own voice assistant, which will provide fast, accurate, hands-free control of your music. Distiller Music Group has signed on to a global publishing deal with Downtown Music Services. The New York-based stock content firm Shutterstock has acquired Pond5, which claims to be the world's largest online marketplace for royalty-free and editorial video. Primary Wave has bought Bob Dylan share of this supergroup, The Traveling Wilburys. Universal Music Group's Web3 label, 1022PM, is launching a virtual world for its Bored Ape NFT band, Kingship. 1022PM will also be releasing 10,000 of what it calls access-enabled key cards in the form of NFTs. Warner Music Spain and Warner Chapel Music have launched a new and creative hub in Madrid, Spain called The Music Station. Amazon Music has named Laura Lucans Head of Music Industry UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Christina Chavez has been named Vice President of A&R at Universal Music Publishing Group. Reservoir and Pop Arabia have acquired Egyptian record label 100 copies. 
Chris Blackwell has been promoted to Executive Vice President of A&R and Content Strategy at Republic Records. Multimedia Music has acquired the master and publishing rights to a 48-title film score catalog from Atlantic Screen Music. The management company 360 has joined a partnership with New York-based talent company Frontline Entertainment. The music distribution platform DistroKid is entering into the music video market with the launch of DistroVid. Bad Bunny has become Spotify's all-time most streamed artist globally on its platform in a single day with 183 million Spotify streams in 24 hours. A big thank you to Hannah Rosenberg of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. Today's multi-hyphenated music guru has defined the term reinvention with his countless creative ventures. He has influenced scores of musicians with his uniqueness and collaborated with some of the world's biggest artists because of it. This frontman of Sleepy Jackson went on to be half of the eponymous Empire of the Sun, solidifying his status as alt-rock and electronic royalty. And now, after 20 years of music making, he's emerged with his mystic wisdom on his new solo album. This Kiwi has reached the ears of people across the world, spanning all the genres. Always fun to write with this guy, and I'm excited for you all to meet him. And the writer is Empire of the Sun frontman, Luke Steele. And that crowd goes wild. Russ, you're going to be my new... Right-hand man, MC at the shows. Come on, that was outstanding. I sound like I know what I'm doing. I mean, exactly. That's what you should do, for, especially for the solo. Like, now that you're doing the solo thing, you should just take that. You'll take that clip, and, like, you could have, like, the lights pulsing, maybe do a <laughs> remix around it. Have you on the screen. Golden huge. Yeah, exactly. That's great. It's great to be um, here, man. Great to be talking to you. It's been a while since we... We caught up when we wrote those hit songs that we're waiting for someone to record. Yeah, I, I feel like that's... A, I, I guess we should give a little background before we go into your story, but we actually wrote over quarantine and on Zoom. You were like one of the first people that I feel like I wrote a song that I like on Zoom. <laughs> did, you end up, did you end up liking working on Zooms? Did you like quarantine? I did, you know, because... I guess I've been in LA for the last 10 years and, you know, LA when someone goes, let's do a session in Hollywood, you know, I'd live down at the, the beach and it would take me, you know, six hours to get there and, you know, 30 Red Bulls later and by the time you start to work, you, you just want to go home and have a wine, you know. So I love the, the Zoom writing, you know, you jump on, you get straight to it and then you, and then you leave, you know. Um, you did this whole solo album during quarantine is that what you is that when you wrote all of it i started it right before right before the the pandemic hit i was um i was riding and i i went down to nashville and did a riding trip and did some pedal steel on some on some and actually when i was coming back um when was it march when that date happened it was 
I noticed something's going on because it's all on the news everywhere. I went to get some hand sanitizer and all that. And then when I got on the plane, the guy was wiping all the seats. And so, yeah, I literally, when I got back to LA after that, it, it went into lockdown. So, yeah, it was cool. I got to, I, I got to finish it, you know. Well, it wasn't cool what happened, but yeah, it was good that I could focus and do it. The first time that I, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this to you when we were writing a few months back, but the first time that I met you, I know you don't remember because um, it would be weird if you did, but you were playing at, uh, what was the venue? It was in LA and it closed, but it was when you were in Sleepy Jackson. Um, and it was one of those things where, I want to say Mars Volta played like on a show with you guys or something like that. It was like this era of like all this really good music when 103.1 was like the radio station in LA where you could, where there were people championing real band music, you know? Um, and I guess it's this thing where it's like with a band like the Sleepy Jackson, I feel like that's the, that's, I, I wasn't the first person to sort of, fall in love with your work um, through that band, but I kind of want to go back to the beginning of your story and, and lead up to the Sleepy Jackson, but I I just think it's cool when you see somebody who's a front man of a band and uh, at a show and then later work with them you know, 10, 15 years later or something like that, because you've been at this for a long time. So uh, I just said, so you know, cool. welcome to the for the welcome to the podcast, man. Yeah, no, thank you. That was the Troubadour, right? I think you mentioned when we were riding. Yeah, I, may, I might have been the Troubadour. I think, oh, shoot, I'll remember it later. But okay, so let's go back to the beginning. Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, it actually is like the kind of it's the kind of place that people go to break music. People release music in New Zealand and Australia to see how it reacts to the rest of the world. Why uh, why Auckland? So I was born there, but when I was really young, I I moved to Perth. Um, so, I, yeah, I mainly grew up in Perth. But um, we do actually um, have a place on, on the Coromandel and head back there, you know, quite a bit. So I've sort of become... Um, you know, getting back to New Zealand a fair bit now, but um, why? I guess why? Why is why does music out of New Zealand and Australia affect the rest of the world? What is it about people who live in that region? Yeah, and new music. Well, for me, growing up in Perth, it's it's known as the most isolated city in the world. It's from distance per ne- to next. Um, Capita and you know it really is quite far away and quite small and when i when I was in uh school, you know I kind of spent a lot of the weekends you know with the four track trying to remake the white album and stuff like that, and just realizing that i had to I had to make something good to actually escape and get out. did your parents do music yeah, so my father's a um a blues mu- musician. He's still playing. So I kind of, he's still the president of the, the blues club there. And he, he's, he has been for about 30 years. So I kind of grew up in a blues club. And um, yeah, that was a great, great beginning, you know, because every Tuesday I'd be there and then 
you know, 30 or 40 old blues blues musos would come back and, you know, teach you chords and tell you stories and stuff. But yeah, I I basically saw like I had to write some good songs to get out of get out of the isolation and see the world. Yeah, I mean, people who don't know what Perth is, Australia is almost the size of the United States, and Perth is the one city on the West Coast that anybody lives in, and there's nothing between the West Coast and the East Coast. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really isolated. Why did your family end up in Perth? Yeah, it, yeah, my my dad just um, had to get out of Auckland and just yeah, just sort of did a one way flight and ended up there. I think he had some gigs planned at the the concert hall or something. He was I think he was playing Neil Diamond covers and JJ Kale and stuff. So he lobbed there, and my mum was working at the bar there, and then they met, and yeah, he never left. Uh, you have you have siblings that are all into music too. Uh, tell me about your family like that. Yeah, so my my older brother, he was the original drummer of Sleepy Jackson. So we we spent a lot of years cheering together, you know, like just in the L three hundred Mitsubishi Mitsubishi van with the PA in the back. Always the greatest memories, you know. I always laugh about that because once you get older, it just gets too professional, you know. Um, so yeah, he was the drummer for a few years, and and my sister is is um, Katie. She's an incredible songwriter and her first big band was a band called Little Birdie and they kind of went pretty big around Australia, New Zealand. Um, and then my her twin, Jake, is an electronic kind of, um, what is it? It's like hardcore trap kind of, oh, he does a bit of house music. He's, um, yeah, a pretty crazy electronic producer. So, um, yeah, there's a, a good kind of, mix, you know, between all the kids. Do you guys have a text chain where you send songs? Yeah, it's, start, it's starting to get a bit like that, you know. Yeah, Dropbox links and things, but yeah, we should do more, really. Kind of combine this sort of dark trap music with Beach Boys harmonies and Katie's like syrupy voice. Could be could be yeah, something good. I mean, I, it could be uh, sort of Bee Gees-esque or something. So like all their voices ended up being so close because they were actually related, you know? <laughs> like, maybe there's something in there. Yeah. Um, when you start, you played music before Sleepy Jackson, you know? Like, you were already 18 when Sleepy Jackson started. Um, what was the moment where you were like, oh, this is a profession and this isn't just fun? Like you were saying, it was you all your good memories when you think before it gets professional. When was that moment where all of a sudden you became professional? Good. So it's the... Yeah, I think when um, I finally started touring to the East Coast, like that sort of... Um, I really wanted to get signed to have a support of a... A label, and I wanted to get signed on my terms, so I'd send a, a, a cassette tape of all spoken word stuff I was writing. You know, I was writing a book called Icon Python, and then I'd send, you know, a tape of blues songs or country songs. And I got signed, and then uh, there's a Perth band called Jebediah, and they said, um, "Do you want to come on tour around Australia with us?" It's, it's, I think it was 27 dates, and I was two weeks away from getting my my diploma of art and design. <laughs> I've done three years at art school, and the and the tour started in a few weeks, and so I just said I'm going on the road and bailed. I never got my diploma. <laughs> do you feel? Do you wish you f- 
finished? Like, is there a part of you that just feels like ah, oh, I should, you know, I should? Nah, shit not really. Right yeah, no, nah, it's fine. It's funny because all the art teachers would always laugh at me and go, oh, you, "Good luck with your band, steel." But I'd because I'd always do the projects would be for the band and they'd always have a good laugh and it was like. It's pretty funny because all the all the covers ever since art school and everything, all the art I've done myself. So, yeah. Do they do you keep in touch with them? Are you aware of you know other than them saying good luck? Have have they over time reached out? No, nah. no. Nah. I think it's the strain way. It's like once you pass that, you cross the Rubicon, <laughs> yeah. across the threshold, you're apparently too professional. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you so you signed in in Australia though. When you say East Coast, you're saying like Melbourne and yeah. Brisbane and yeah, Sydney. Sydney, and you sign out of the East Coast of of Australia. I can't imagine that there are a bunch of labels in Perth, although I'm sure there are. Um, when you sign to a label in Australia, my assumption is that the goal at that point is to be big in Australia. You know, so that there's a huge difference, I feel like, from being big in Australia and being big in the rest of the world. But it took years. It wasn't like you released your first album on EMI and it was and it was worldwide right away. You know, it was sort of it, it feels like it took some time, didn't it? Yeah, we did a bunch of EPs on the Sleepy Jackson first, and that kind of started getting ways, but the first LP lovers. I had this manager who was, you know, she was crazy, but she was a hustler. You know, she went in and if people said no to a story, she'd, you know, call them 30 times. And um, so she managed to get that first record basically released in about 35 countries. So when it did come out, it was a pretty big, you know, release. And yeah, we ended up going on a pretty big world tour. You know, looking back now, it was a pretty extensive tour. We went around America twice in a splitter van. We went you know, through Europe a bunch of times and it did really take off and I don't know, it was 22 years ago now so that, you know, what the industry was like back then, it sort of, it was a lot more street press and it was a lot more focused and there wasn't so much, you know, there was probably about 8 billion less musicians and artists. So yeah, I, I did get pretty lucky there on that, that first bit. Touring in 2003 means that you're touring with an almanac in the car, like you have an actual map. Maybe you're using MapQuest <laughs> ahead of the time, but when you're d- talking about driving in a Sprinter van in 2003, there's no smartphones, there's no GPS, you're missing exits, you're exhausted all the time. Ugh. And when you play shows, it doesn't mean that everybody has, even knows who you are yet because it's not like the internet where you can see even beforehand, you know, are there going to be any fans that are going to show up to these shows? Touring around the U.S. for two straight times must have been exhausting and super rewarding. Talk about what that's like to go on. Uh, you know, you're touring around the world without without GPS. Uh, like that era is so different, man. Yeah, it's 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 so funny you ask that because. Um... The drummer was a great cinematographer, so he filmed everything. So he, we just found all this footage. He's got about 80 hours of, of the world tour um, that we're, we're going to start sifting through. But it was quite mental, you know. We're all trying to relive the Motley Crue book. And um, I'd sign my publishing. We're at 
you know, early 20s and all you want to do is, is party, pick up girls and play music and, you know, rock and roll. So it was, it was really wild time and I think that's what, you know, I've been talking a bit about that lately with this, um, this solar record. That's what's so great about when you're, when you're young is because you're so ruthless. You don't care. You have that effervescent kind of energy and, yeah, you smash hotel rooms, you smash guitars, you drink too much, smoke too much, but that's what, that's what builds you. You know, you make mistakes, you piss people off, you yeah. But looking back now, yeah, it's definitely going to be a memoir coming one day about those those times because, yeah, some of the, the things and shenanigans we got up to. <laughs> God. Yeah, it's so it's so hard to explain that era. And when you you go into a club and you're on tour and everyone's on the same circuit, so you start seeing the band that's going to play with you, you know, the week after in this club or is playing before, but all the bands kind of know each other who are on like a certain level of these circuits. Yeah. Did you, you know, but you're not necessarily like collaborating. It's just sort of like, ah, you see that they're playing the same circuit and you kind of like cheer each other on in a way. Yeah. If that makes any sense. But who are the bands that you were, you know, at this point, you know, the band world, everyone knew who the Sleepy Jackson was. You know, how were you communicating with other bands and with other collaborators at this point? Like one tour that I always remember was a 25-day tour with my morning jacket. And that was just, that was just such an incredible time because, you know, they're just such an amazing band and they would play for two and a half hours. So we'd, you know... We'd play our hour set and then you'd have this, you know, kind of like at a dead concert or something, this time to just soak it in and party and just be part of where you are and then you, you get on the bus and then you end up at the next place. And, yeah, that was one one great tour that um, I remember. But, uh, yeah, God, I'm trying to think of other bands that we... How did your voice hold up? I mean, it's... I always think that the guy, the guy who has the best job in the world, is the bassist. <laughs> you know, like he can go, he can go and party, he can go and play and hit most of the notes on the right things and enjoy it. But for the most part, the the people whose voices are, you know, who are singing, like it's hard, it's hard to tour, you know, and do twenty six shows or twenty five shows and also party. I don't know. It feels like that's insane. Maybe it was because you were young, but how do you use your how does your voice hold up? Are you just anatomically made to be able to do that? It's it's age, hey. That's why they say youth is wasted on the young, because it's it's amazing how much you can how much you can do at that age, at, at twenty two. You know, we'd stay out all night drinking, smoking, get to the show, have some burgers, you know, and a Jackson Coke and then you you're back on and like you'd obviously get tired, but you just your metabolism's so fast, and I just know because now I look to when I'm on tour now, and it's like, you know, I need to rest. I, I can't ever go out after a show because I'll lose my voice. I need like throat coat, honey. You know, <laughs> I have to be rested just so I can like, you know, it's quite it's a bit a bit discouraging it in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> telling telling younger you that you're not going to be drinking that Jack and Coke. Uh, when you know when you're going to be releasing that solo album, but you're going to be drinking throat coat. You, the younger you, you, younger you would slap you. Man. There's no way, man. 
how did you, you know, doing that kind of touring, and it is exhausting even at that age, you still managed to write and record another album after Lovers with the Sleepy Jackson. Um, one was a spider, one was a bird. How could you find any time to do that? Do you write really fast? Or, you know, when were you able to actually write and record after what seems to be years of touring? Yeah, I'm funny, you know. I'm always kind of writing in some way, whether it's like cataloging on like a dictaphone or a phone or writing something that I've always had. It's not a bad habit to be in really because um, something always comes back, you know, at a later time, even if it's a, you know, 30-second sketch or a, you know, a pencil drawing or something. So... I guess what what happened at the end of you know that album, the second album comes out or full length album comes out. There had to be some conversation with the band that you were going to go do, a you know another project. Was it Empire of the Sun initially a side project, or was it like you know what, I'm going to go and do a new you know I'm just retiring from the Sleepy Jackson for a moment. Like what what's the transition from being in a band that seems to be on an uprising trajectory and then pivoting and doing another project? Why do that? Yeah, well I think once the second Sleepy record came out it didn't really you know, it didn't really take off like the first album and by that point it was everyone was pretty exhausted and I'd kind of um I'd I went into um, this big warehouse in Perth. I, I met this girl that and you know, ended up becoming my wife and we, we got this big warehouse and I kind of got it as a compound, you know, like a big writing space. And I said, you know, let's do the next record here. Everyone come down. Everyone's on a retainer. Let's just... And the, but it just worked out. No one really came, came down <laughs> to the factory. So it sort of became... It ended up turning into me and my wife's place, you know, that it became our factory of recording stuff. So it sort of just became a um, natural progression. But funnily enough, this factory ended up being the place where we wrote Walking on a Dream, you know, which has been my biggest song in my career. So, yeah, it's funny how it just, it's just sort of, you know what it's like sometimes. The, the fire just goes out and people just sort of drive their cars in different directions. Did it? You know that Walking on a Dream was as big as it was when you wrote it. Did you know, like, oh, this is this is a new level, or was it just another song at the time? I think we knew it was good, but I think maybe even at that point, that earlier on, early on, I was probably already slightly immune to the disaster of the music industry that you can, you know, put out a great song, but it. It literally needs to have all of the planets aligning for it to do its thing. But when the Empire did eventually come out, it did do that thing that I've never experienced where it just, it's like you're on the wave and you, no one's falling. You know, the wave, the wave just keeps breaking and you're still, you're still, ride it, still riding it. What does that mean? You know, here you are in, back in this remote city, you worked your way out of that remote city and then you know you're uh you release walking on a dream and it's it's so big and it's so big worldwide 
How did you start realizing, and when did you start realizing that the rest of the world was just like, oh, this is a different level of success? Because you're so removed from everyone. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Hey, it's kind of, you know, we we finished that backtracking a little bit after Sleepy sort of disbanded. You know, went to Sydney and I started running with Nick, and we we're basically, you know, destitute, sleeping on the floor. This and that, and we got the record done. Ended up back in Perth, and um, you know, my wife got pregnant, and it just so happened that the week that my daughter was born, the record came out. So there we were, we were kind of, you know, living in this caravan out the front of my parents' house, and my daughter's born, the record comes out, and then, boom, you know, it was like she. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It was this, this blessing, you know, for our family because, you know, I'm trying to, like, work out how to be a dad and every email is, this is, song's being picked up here, picked up here, you know, worldwide, you've been offered these tours and it just exploded, you know. When you were touring with the Sleepy Jackson, you were playing pretty good size venues. But the next time you're going on tour, after this that kind of success with Empire of the Sun, it's you know my assumption is you've never played in front of audiences that big. I mean, even opening for My Morning Jacket, a really big band, I feel like Empire of the Sun ends up being a whole other level of of <laughs> yeah. audience partic- participation you know yeah um how is, how is that being a front man of a you know of, of one band you release music you're getting emails people saying the song's getting picked up but it's still an email it's not anything until you see what the difference of you know 3000 people versus 10000 people yeah it was crazy man cuz for a long time it was like you know with we're not touring and, and Nick didn't want to tour. Um, but it just started getting kind of crazy. It started being like headline this festival, this whole run, bigger. And it kind of got bigger and bigger until it was like, you know, if I showed my dad, he would have gone, you're, a, you're an idiot, you know, if you don't do that. So we came on, you know, it was the Park Life Festival, which was, um, which was this big festival around Australia, which had a lot of the Ed Banger kind of guys. It was really a real hip kind of look and, and it was funny because in all the interviews leading up, we'd, you know, we'd written a screenplay, you know, for the for the Empire record, and we'd said, you know, there's going to be elephants on stage, and so, um, yeah, it took a good six months to work out how to build this show that it's it's not going to disappoint people. It's pretty funny. 
how did your family react? Like you were saying, you know, that your dad would say, You're stupid for not doing this. It seems like your you know, your siblings and your you know, your your family is really supportive, but they're all trying to do a similar thing. Were they all supportive? Were was there ever competition among siblings? No, not so much. I I think I think there's a little bit, but um the hardest part for me was um was I grew up in that environment where you you work closely with people and you make a record and you tour it's quite simple and when when Nick had said I'm not touring I basically I took that really hard because it was you know it worked out great in the end because he's such a great you know record producer he's, that's where his domain is but for a good 6 months it was I couldn't really understand that so I had to work out how to build a band and you know build the sound and everything but um Everyone knows what it's like a musical family, you know. I think everyone knows it's just it's a it's a real mess, you know. It can be great. Wait, it can be you... a, it can be a an amazing place, but it can also be <laughs> pretty bad. When you have a newborn and the song comes out, obviously it's a blessing. The song takes off. The album's really successful. Um you how you know you once you start touring you start touring but you have to I assume you're you have to leave your daughter at home. No, nah, that was you know? that was cool. We said to we we would take a nanny and my wife and my daughter and, and she traveled the the whole world. You know, like eight times cool over. It was, it was quite amazing and yeah, it's a big joke in the family now. It's like we see a photo where she's in I don't know Belgium or something and we go, oh, you were. I think you're about three there, so it's always a big joke now. It's all my best years of my life happened when I was three. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, how did you feel about when you know you do a second album? When you do the second album, um, it's also a successful album. How were you able to refocus after touring and performing for all? Those people and and you're seeing the success, you know. Did you find was there pressure for the second album, or was it sort of, uh, we we did it now. This is just fun. Man, there was so much pressure on that second one. Like I had a lot of massive mental breakdowns. You know, like these deep depressions where it's like I think being the singer and being the forefront, and I'm always so hands on with the artwork and the, you know, the concepts and. Yeah, and we just did so much writing, you know, we we wrote in New York with Benny Blanco, we wrote with the Neptunes in Miami, we wrote in London, we wrote in Hollywood Hills, we wrote at my place in New Zealand, we wrote with Nick's at Nick's place in Sydney. We we literally wrote all around the world, you know, for a 12-song record. You know, we we go so we go so hard, you know, to try and make the records the best they they can be, but it was a tough one, you know. To finish, but you did finish it. Were you proud when you finished it? Yeah, I love that record. You know that second record. But, you know, I'm just yeah. It's a yeah. funny feeling, you know, when you kind of I don't know. Sometimes you know, three or four years of you know mental torment and punishing anxiety, <laughs> you get this record, and but it came out good. You know, it came out great. You do a lot of collaborating. And I find that that's that's not always normal for 
people and bands to do. But you know, like you you mentioned the Neptunes and Benny and some of these people. I know we've worked together. I mean, you're not afraid to collaborate with, you know, I guess outside writers. Who's who introduced you to that idea? And were you always excited? Like, was that always something that was interesting for you? Yeah, I think I loved the, like, the friendship of it as well. You know, you sort of, I've, I've said this a bit, but I was, I was never the guy, guy, you know, that would play beer pong and, you know, watch the, the football and that. It was always like, no, let's hang out and let's make something dope. So I think, um, Collaborating became that thing. It's like let's use the time to just, you know, make some, some great art, and um, yeah, I just love the the unpredictability of it. You know, when someone does something and it's like you, you know, yeah, I like when that you come in with, you come in with poems. That's something like you, you know, and when you were saying in the beginning, you would send almost these like spoken word things. You know, it's. You're you love the language, and I think that's that seems to be where you start a lot of your songs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think when I was young, I struggled so much to work out what would actually be your identity. You know, that thing, the song I want to, we should write is a song. Um, Just be you. It's the hardest thing to do. You know. It's like I had a friend was who came over from Perth actually, and he was in LA, and he ended up running to some guru on Venice, and he said, "Just be you, man. It's the hardest thing to do." <laughs> I think the early part of my life, it was like, you know, I was learning Django Reinhardt, but then I, I would love Hendrix, you know, and Hendrix how he would record on Electric Ladyland and whisper and reverse it. But then I really loved William Burroughs, you know. I thought William Burroughs was just so ahead of his time. Um, and craft work, you know, and that, so it's like, how can, how can you be, you know, I guess that's why I'm a bit envious of actors all the time because it's like they get to play all the roles, you know, so part of me is like collaborating. You can, you can step into these other worlds that people have been where you're going or want to go and, and you can just get a little taste, you know, of what, what they've learned over in Electronic Land or William Burroughs Land. Yeah, I wish other, I wish other people, I wish all musicians believe that. Like, it's okay to write songs alone, totally. And it's okay to write songs with just your bandmate. But it's also okay to write songs with people outside just because, why not? It's just a day. Uh. It's like, you don't have to use the song. You could still try it and you might be like, oh man, this song's amazing. I want to release it. You know, but there are no rules to it. Uh. You know? I, I used to talk about that. A lot when I was younger, actually, in that early days, like what happened if Bjork married Tom Waits or, or Carol King had a, a night out with Daft Punk? You know, it's it is or music is such a paradox. You know, it's always those sessions where people go, "You got to write with this girl or this guy," and on paper it looks <laughs> it looks like you're already you're already buying the jet ski. You know, you hmm. go in there and then that they start talking about something that you just don't agree with, and it's the worst session ever. It's it's quite amazing. Yeah, you really don't know. That's why you have to walk in and see what happens on the other side. Yeah. There's no guarantee, but you do the third album, um, Two Vines. Um, you know, how did you? 
How did you feel releasing that compared to the two previous before that? Were you going through the same torture going through this third album? We'll see two. Vi- in the previous I, I loved the two vines record because everyone was saying, get back in the studio. And we were working at the Empire Compound, which is in downtown. And, you know, again, LA traffic, like we should write that song. It's just, you know, we'd start at five. So I'd have to leave at like one o'clock, you know, and you get to downtown and you're, and it just got painful, you know. We'd work all night and then I'd be driving back on the 10 at 3 a.m., all the windows down the air con, like punching myself in the face to stay awake. And just after doing that, I um, I just said, why don't we go to like Hawaii? Why don't we just go there for a month and go surfing, eat food, record. And, you know, I didn't take, didn't take much to convince all the other guys. So that basically the two vines record we went to hawaii and just yeah it was just such a great time just riding and surfing and brought brought a lot of love back to the band you know it was getting quiet i don't know it's it's hard to explain that feeling when something becomes so big because there's there's so much pressure that you have to um i don't know i think i'm so sensitive i realize there's a lot of people to feed you know in your own compound and you have to i don't know just has to that can become overwhelming. I've always found so it was good to kind of let all go, let all that go and just get back to what's important. I imagine that also releasing that album, having had more fun making it, is more enjoyable when you're performing the songs because there's there was just probably less stress about the whole thing, right? Yeah, there is. You know, I, th- I think with the Empire, it's just always so. You know, it's quite expansive and over blown and you know we we spend so long building a show and that it's there's always you know adventures in it but why do you know it's been a minute since two vines you know that's and i know the world has gone through all kinds of changes and a lot of things have happened so you know uh minus the last 3 years of craziness you know maybe it's not it maybe it's longer on paper than it is in in our creative brains. But why why do a solo album? I mean, you've been a guy who's sort of defined a couple really significant bands. Why do a solo album? You know, I think I've been trying to make this record for so long and it's I don't know, I think I've just had to until grown up and got to that point, you know, where I actually do it. I think um you know the what record? The fourth Empire record. We, you know, we spent the last five years working on stuff. You know, we went to Japan for a few writing trips, which were really amazing. And you know, the record was was going to be all based around around that. But then that kind of got scrapped. And then we started a new record. And it's it is really like, oh, what's a good analogy here, Ross? You know, like when something just works. You know, like you. Yeah, like when you meet your wife or something, you know, you can't do anything wrong, you know, you say something and she actually thinks your joke's funny and then she makes you mm. feel more confident. You know, like Empire's amazing like that because if, if the spirit isn't right and it's not a pure spirit, it just doesn't work. You know, when I sing, nothing comes out, you know. Everyone's like, he's singing, he's shouting, but it just sounds silent or the chords will just be invisible, you know. You'll play the song and people go, where's the song? You know, it's, so we spent five years on that and it just got to the point where it was, it was really quite painful, you know, to just keep 
pressing, you know. It's like trying to tell the Holy Ghost what to do, you know. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. So I started doing these sketches and it was just felt so liberating for me to, to go, well, if I want to have my vocals loud as Elvis or if I just want pedal steel and an acapella, great, I'm going to do it. Or if I want six guitars reversed. And I love that, you know, because as much as Empire's free, it became quite, you know, it's a process, you know, my vocals record a certain way, the keyboards retract, it's, it did have a, a formula, you know. So I love that. It's, I, can, I can sing about anything. I can... And it was like, um, you know, God was just giving me little breadcrumbs, you know. Like I'd get up, I'd do a song, and I'd, it'd be two, two days on each song, finish it. Like I'd come back after and fine tune it, but then I'd get another breadcrumb and it just went like that until it was sort of, it was done. Do you have expectations attached to releasing it? I, I mean, obviously we all do when we release music and we have different things, but like, yeah, I guess that's the real question. It's like, you're going to release, you know, you release the solo thing and it's, and it's, you're going to be proud or you're proud of like that that liberating feeling. But do you have commercial expectations attached to it having been part of these other bands? Or are you doing this? Is there any commercial purpose to releasing music at this point? It's a good question. It's funny you said that because I think this is the first time and maybe the maybe the first record where I'm completely surrendered, you know, that the songs, like I've always said songs fine where they're meant to go, but I really feel that this record, it's it's the people that will hear it will hear it and you know, I might sell, you know, twenty eight copies, but that's that's fine, you know. Do you think of when you say sell twenty eight copies, the reality is like you could sell twenty eight copies and have five hundred million streams. You know, it's like what do you think about where we started back in two thousand and three? As artists, where it's like the only metric is how many CDs you sold. Even at that time, vinyl is like not doing what it's doing now. You know, like when it's so, it's such a different place. The world that we're in now is just such a different place than the world <laughs> we were when you released the Sleepy Jacks, you know, Lovers. It's Ugh. so crazy. And those guys that had hits in the 80s, God, they're still buying jet skis now, you know. It's like, now, what do we get paid, Ross? Like 0. 0.002 cents, and then that gets taken by the tax man anyway, right? And even at that time, walking into record, walking into record stores and looking at your record in a store is like was, was such an amazing feeling. And right now, it's like, it's just, you know, it's, just, it's streaming. Although I guess right now, you probably could walk into a number of, yeah, I bet every vinyl shop is is excited to have you walk in, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you'll still see it. It's crazy. I know, you just got to keep reminding yourself, like, about the power of it, you know? Sometimes you just wish, you know, can you turn that into some cold hard cash so we can go to Hawaii or something? But, yeah, it is really the the power, you know, that music can break that break into the fourth dimension, you know? And it's still amazing, when you read what people write, you know, and they, I read something on Instagram the other day of, of one of the new songs and this lady, she said, I never forget when I saw you in Chicago with Empire of the Sun, I went and I felt like something 
in, in the chamber and my heart was missing. And then after I left, it was like you put it back in place because I left happier than when I got there. And it was like, wow, okay. That's, um, that makes it all worthwhile, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, that's what I was saying in the beginning. I just remember, I, I don't remember a lot of bands that I saw. I remember seeing you and knowing... There was this station in LA, 103.1, that was amazing. It used to just, it's, it's like where you would discover, you know, that whole generation of Interpol and, oh, wow. Like all the, you know, all the, like the cool bands. It was like the stuff that wasn't getting played on K Rock yet. Yeah. And it was, it was so cool. And I just remember hearing that these bands and then wanting to go see, you know, who these people were that were releasing music. That wasn't trying to be commercial. Yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, and maybe you were, but like it, it was like it was it was an era where good music was opening the doors. Yeah. You know, yeah. not the the stations in a way. Yeah. In this next segment, I'm gonna list five things and tell me what comes off the top of your head. Oh, one of those, okay. Yeah, one of those. Let's start with your dad. Uh, like heritage, wisdom, um, in the blues, they're the main things, you know. Let's. How many? How many? How many lines can I go into it? Is it just like yeah, the two-word thing? That's it, whatever you want. There really aren't any rules. Um, let's go with the Sleepy Jackson. Oh, I think um, Sleepy Jackson. Just feels like a world away, you know, wild adventure, you know, blurry. <laughs> but fair enough. But, but also, you know, quite clear and life changing. Let's do Empire of the Sun. I think like letting go over the top, um, like the light streaming through a crack in the door. Um, you know, acres of diamonds. The, you know, divine intelligence, you know, all those things. Before we go and finish this segment, I, you mentioned a lot of things that are spiritual. Clearly, you're in touch with a, something different than just this Zoom call, <laughs> you know? Um, what is your spirituality? How would you describe that? I guess when this is going way back, if you know, you probably don't have time for a whole testimony, but it was after touring with, after my brother left the band, I went on touring with Sleepies, and I just, that was that moment where I'm Veruca Salt. I want the whole world. I want the money. I want the girl. I want the, you know, I want the whole world. Give it to me. And I just went so hard, you know, I was just an animal, you know, and the whole thing um, fell apart, you know, it all, it all fell over and I became so depressed and it got to the point where, you know, my mum literally found me in the bath just like cutting, cutting my wrist kind of thing and it was like, this is, this is like the final, this is the end of the, the road here, you know. Um, not that I was going to kill myself but just more like just... I was just so angry and and that's when my brother who I'd, you know, 
basically said, you have to leave the band. He came back and he took me to this church and there was this Irish preacher there, Colin Murphy, and he basically just saved me and brought me to Christ. And, you know, that's been the thing that's, you know, I'm still a mess, but <laughs> it's, the, it's the one thing that's kept me, you know, I think grounded, you know, and made me realise that there's something better beyond my vanity. So, yeah, it's been a wild journey because um, sometimes I wonder why you keep falling, you know. It's, it gets a bit embarrassing. It's like, just what are you doing on the ground again? Just get up. <laughs> but I think that's what's so good with God. You can just go back and you can hand over the, you can hand over the garbage, you know, and um, get a fresh slate to keep going. Is that where your inspiration as a writer now comes from? Yeah, it does a lot more because I think that's where, that's what becomes, has become so important in my life, you know, about, you know, there's, there's so many metaphors with everything in everyone's life every day that comes back to the fact that, you know, you're going to die and then there's going to be the next generation and so on. So, yeah, a lot of funeral songs, a lot of um, <laughs> songs about the afterlife. A lot of songs about, you know, realizing the life that, you know, we've been given right now. Um, yeah. Well, let's finish the five for five with that in mind and start with your daughter. My daughter, Sunny Tiger, she was, you know, such a blessing in our life. And yeah, we named her to, to be like the kind of like, um, like the princess warrior kind of thing. You know, she's Sunny that she had the, the fierce, like, fight of a tiger, you know. And, um, yeah, it was like once she was born, thing, everything got better and it was, really was such a blessing, you know, to have, to have a child. It's such a gift. Like, talking about that, about spirit, it really is a gift from God, you know, when you see what goes into making the fingers and the heart and the mind and it's, it's like, how do, you, how do you do that, you know? Just went through it, and it's like it's. Oh, really? Oh, it's it's beautiful. Well, we'll talk more about that later. Okay, um, your son. Son? Well, my son. Yeah, he is. So, Sunny Tiger. And he's Cruz Walker because he's like, he's going to be. He's the Prince of Peace. You know, he's going to be walking with the Prince of Peace. But yeah, he was um, really amazing gift. You know, because after Sunny was born, we went through you know, some hard times for those couple of years. And it was, um, sometimes you look at your kids and you kind of go, wow, <laughs> like what happened her? Huh? It's just, yeah, it's hard to explain that feeling. Yeah. Jody, your wife. Uh, Jody, snaps, snappy dolphin. Yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, she kind of changed my life in a pretty drastic way because, she, she not only is my wife, but she's always been my best friend, you know. It's kind of the minute I met her, it was like, You've, you're, my, you're my best friend, you know. And we, we, you know, I took her on the road all around the world and, you know, put her in the band and it sort of became, we just became this, you know, this powerful team. And I think um, that's the, the best thing about a marriage, you know, is that the, the team becomes strong, it becomes like an oak tree, you know, and it gets really deep the roots and 
I think it's grown stronger, you know, as we've been married, you know, 15 years, it's sort of getting stronger and stronger. So, uh, my rock. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much for doing this, man. Um, you know, uh, we got to work together in a time when um, the world was pretty uncertain and it was, it was really cool for us to do that. And, and the fact that I like both the songs that we wrote together um, says a lot about how enjoyable it is to work with somebody who's like, I've got ideas and you come in with lyrics that are different and that there's there's a, a perspective that's so fresh. And I mean, there's no wonder why you've been so successful. But uh, also it's just been, it's you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're my friend. Ugh, respect, Russ. Right back at you, man. Those um, tracks, I totally agree. You know, it was, it was a great collab. You know, I'd put something down, then you'd go, just give me 20 seconds. And then there's like this beautiful melody. It was like, oh, we've got to do more. Hey, like if um, if you're down, I just booked a place down. I don't know if this is going to be in the interview, but. <laughs> we just booked a place in. Beep. Yeah. <laughs> well, just... here, we'll wrap up and then we'll talk afterwards. Yeah. But thanks again, man. And uh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks again, Russ. Awesome chatting, bro. This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirchin, Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 